and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I am your host, Marianne Petrie. I have a return guest on. I have Dr. Lynn Steinberg, as well as attorney Brian Ludmer. Uh, Lynn Steinberg has worked with families and provided a four-day reunification group, and she's experienced in parental alienation for 11 years. And she is an expert witness in parental alienation. Attorney Brian Ludmer is a Canadian attorney whose practice focuses on cases involving high-conflict custody battles, denying of parenting times and parental alienation, as well as high-net-worth financial disputes. He is also a business and securities law attorney with over 35 years' experience. He also has a book called The High-Conflict Custody Battle, which he co-wrote with Dr. Amy Baker and Dr. Michael Bone in 2015. He has also spoken around the world in regards to parental alienation. I welcome you both to the show. Uh, how are you both? Good. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad to have okay. you on. And Lynn, you were last on my show, I believe last year. Was it, was it last year that long ago? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, I will tell you briefly about what the issue has been. And actually, I think this is the first time we've talked out about it. Um, it. There have been a lot of hate groups who have been attacking us for this incident. Although there's, you know, this is kind of a routine that we do whenever there is a court order ordering the children back into the custody of the alienated parent. And um, the way we set it up is that right after the court order comes out, the parent takes custody of the child who's been living with the alienator. And um, the next day, my four-day unification program will start. And it's a therapeutic unification program, as opposed to what these hate groups have been calling it, which is a concentration camp. It's not a camp. Um, we meet 10 to, to 4 each day, and it's each day is full of therapy, you know, getting the alienated parent and child to talk to one another, to talk about the issues that have arisen, what their life's going to be like now that they're back with the, with the alienated parent. And at the end of the four days, they leave reunited with that parent. Mm -hmm. And there's about six programs where um, in the United States, and there's a very high success rate with this four-day intervention. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, so there have been these groups who wrote a bill trying to prevent judges from ordering this program. And um, I and a few other people worked on killing this bill. It was just an outrageously ridiculous bill. And they asked for the judge not to be able to order any reunification, not just the four-day program, mm. and that judges would get this inordinate, inordinate amount of training um, like 20 hours the first year, and then every third year they'd have to do 25 hours, I think it was. And so 
I got a lot of support from judges and killed the bill, which was originally Caden's bill mm -hmm. here in um, Los Angeles, well, in California. And um, shortly after that, I was referred this family by a judge and we made arrangements for the kids to come down. She actually ordered for the kids to be taken to the court by the father. And um, she dis she also said that she did not believe there was any abuse or sexual abuse because these accusations had escalated to sexual abuse. And the judge ruled that there was no sexual abuse, which there wasn't, and that the children were to go to mother to the program and live with mom. So usually when children are resistant and they don't show up at the courthouse, we get a company called Assisted Interventions to step in and transport the children to my office. And they usually transport individuals, adults too, who are going to rehab. Mm -hmm. So that gives you an idea of the kind of work that they do. So the um, the kids didn't show up and the assisted interventions went to the house that they were at with the court order and the kids wouldn't come out of the middle of the house. And finally, oh, and the father went somewhere and he was orchestrating this whole mm -hmm. scenario. The police were also there to assist in having the children picked up and transported. Mm. But the father had arranged for the community, the school, family, the neighborhood to all show up at the house and video what was going on. Mm -hmm. And of course, the kids were very resistant. And the father had also videoed them saying that if this law had existed, they would be safe and that I was responsible for eliminating this law. Mm -hmm. And within an hour or so, that video and another video um, were, were put up on the Internet showing that, you know, these kids had to be physically picked up and put in the car. And afterwards, there were photos produced by the father showing, you know, the kids with red faces. And I got all these demand letters to see if I had actually sought medical care. Well, when the kids arrived at my office, they were in perfectly fine shape. They were friends with the transporters. And there were no marks on them, although they had bitten and kicked and bruised the people who transported them here. <laughs> but I didn't even realize that there was this huge thing going on on the internet, but um, there was. And thank goodness the four days went very well, but the mom also got all this hate mail and death threats mm -hmm. And she actually had to lock her house and leave it and take the children to an undisclosed location so that she and the children would be safe from all these hate groups. And since then, um, I think I got 20,000 hits on Google and Facebook and the other platforms in one week. And they've continued that way. And um, the, where these calls originate from, 
reads like the who's who of the people who sponsored this bill. Mm. So specifically, that would be, I can tell you two of them, which would be Mom, One Mom's Battle, Tina Swithin, and the other one would be Kathleen Russell of Center for Judicial Excellence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I find those names kind of ludicrous, but anyway. Um, so this onslaught has continued since then, and to the point that the Board of Supervisors in this town has demanded a hearing about these concentration camps um, and these transporters and, um, you know, want to talk to the legislature about preventing them. So um, at this point, is there anything else I could say, Brian? I'm not sure. I mean, you can take it. Well, um, you know, I, I, I think that um, what's interesting is why weren't these children simply directed by their father in this case to say, okay, you know, didn't go our way, but uh, this is what the adults have decided. And uh, fastest way to get this family back together is, you know, you do your job, I'll do my job, and um, it'll all be fine. Um, when children behave in that manner, um, which is completely antisocial, that doesn't come naturally. I mean, children don't behave like that toward people clearly in authority. Um, so they were clearly put up to it, and I'm sure are feeling rather badly today about how they acted. Mm-hmm. Um, and when the full story ultimately comes out, um, you know, they're, they're, they're these two groups that Lynn mentioned, One Mom's Battle and the Center for Judicial Excellence, they're going to be eating crow. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully, if they're responsible about these things, they'll post a big mea culpa mm-hmm. thing. We're sorry, we really got it wrong, and we've misled a lot of people. Um, and the reason why this is important is um, there, there's not a lot of perspective uh, behind when a court makes this sort of remedy, this sort of uh, structural intervention in a family system. The two groups that Lynn mentioned they'll just instantly assume that the court got it wrong mm-hmm. and that this is terrible. And how can you force children to love a parent that they don't love and nothing can be farther from the truth. So let's, let's unpack it. Um, so the first thing is you're, you're not allowed to assume that the court got it wrong. It's all we have. Mm-hmm. There's a proper forum and two competing narratives are put before the court. Broad range of evidence is collected um, from all kinds of third parties as well, child protection authorities, schools, family therapists, family doctor, family members, and each side gets to put their pitch into the court. And then you have a judge who goes through all of that, bearing in mind that Usually the allegations are quite outlandish and just not supportable. 
highly unlikely in the first place, but certainly not supportable. But ultimately, it's up to the court to make that judgment call and that decision, um, that's fact mm -hmm. in this family system. We don't not act because there's whatever small percentage chance that after all of that rigor, the judge got it wrong. We act on the basis that the judge got it right. Um, and, and that part seems to be lost. The second thing is, I do an awful lot of cases where a family system has been absolutely dysfunctional and stuck for many years post-separation. The family will never restructure in a healthy fashion, absent a healthy family structure being imposed on it. Hierarchies and boundaries and mutual respect and respect for court orders, empathy, forgiveness, all of the normal developmental tools of childhood have been denied children in these situations. So the court has to impose it. But this ultimate remedy of what I like to call, because it's, it's more kid-friendly, a timeout for the offending parent who's unable to share the children, mm -hmm. and some makeup time with the parent who the children have been effectively estranged from artificially. These are completely supportable concepts in the mind of children. But even still, we only do this where all of the more conventional remedies have already been tried and failed. One or two rounds of conventional outpatient therapy, and by that we mean the kids are still living with the favored parent, and an experienced therapist tries to unpack all these family narratives and force the family into that healthy structure and to heal, and inevitably... In, in these most difficult of cases will fail. And the therapy itself becomes yet another battleground for who's right and who's wrong, instead of being the healing and let's focus on the future um, process that it, it it's supposed to be. So what we don't wanna do is, well, let's try a third round of family therapy with maybe somebody from a different uh, professional background because each failed attempt, both scientifically supported and jurisprudentially supported, each failed attempt makes the matter that much worse to solve because everything gets entrenched. So by the time these families get to trial, they have blown through all of the normal remedies and supports that the system could offer. There's often a parental coordination mandate and a family therapy mandate, and an individual therapy mandate if a child has some anxieties, and multiple court appearances where judges have threatened to do something very serious if this doesn't turn around. The lawyers writing each other letters, hey, can I get your client on board to do X, Y, and Z that would be helpful? Can I get your client on board to stop doing A, B, and C, which are unhelpful? All of this messaging to the favored parent is lost. And they, if you 
if, to give you a visual, they're blowing through all these red lights, all these warning signs, all these, maybe it's time to stop, look, and listen, that the science that children do much better coming out of childhood with bonded relationships with both parents, you're ignoring that. And often I will provide some of that leading science to the other counsel to share and discuss with their client because they're not acting alarmed that the children effectively have no relationship with, say, in, in the case that Lynn's speaking about, the entire maternal family. Mm -hmm. There's all these losses that the children experience that will predictably, the science is overwhelming in this regard, lead to major psychological and emotional dysfunction in future. Mm -hmm. And it is the job of all of us involved, people in Lynn's role, people in my role, the judiciary, to ensure that that doesn't happen. So when you get kind of to this ultimate stage whatever percentage of super conflictual families actually have a trial and don't settle. The judges prevent is presented with just a very limited palette of potential go forward orders to make. They can leave the family as is, impose a whole bunch of parental covenants, the do's and the don'ts, maybe increase the court-ordered parenting time for the targeted parent in the hope that it'll be more caregiving, meaning more attachment. They can try that. Not likely to succeed given the history I've just described. Um, they can try and layer in some of the other typical supports that I mentioned that the family hasn't tried yet. Also not likely to succeed. They can give up just say, you know, we're sorry, sir, ma'am, that the system has failed you and your children, but uh, we just we just can't force the issue anymore. And the children, therefore, will lose the entire paternal family or the entire maternal family, as the case may be. We're so sorry, sir, ma'am, that we were not able to get this resolved in time. To And sometimes that's driven by the age of the children, which seems silly because the science tells us, the neuroscience tells us that the teen brain doesn't mature till 24 and a half. So um, to put any weight on a child who's caught in the middle of the vortex and has no real understanding of the trauma that lies ahead for them inevitably, according to the science, seems rather uh, silly. There's only one other option to have a chance at the children exiting childhood with two parents and two extended families. And that is what the court did in Lynn's case. Mm -hmm. And so it is very common as a remedy in Canada for these situations where you've met the preconditions that I've set out and it is remarkably successful. The track record of these structural interventions is off the charts positive, whether or not the mental health practitioner is gonna steward the family through this next stage is part of a formal program or just a very experienced local practitioner 
who practices using a family sy systemic sort of model because that's what that's the expertise that's required mm. and we see proof that this remedy works where it's called for in the statistics the studies that have been done of the formal programs and uh, there's two studies that had been done about family bridges by Dr. Warshak. Um, Professor Harmon did a study on turning points, Linda Gottlieb's program out of New York, New Jersey. Kathleen Ray, uh, who ran a program called Family Reflections in British Columbia, who unfortunately took ill and had to close that down, did a self-study. So obviously a little bit less rigor, but excellent results. And I always put in the jurisprudence that results from the back end. So this is an extremely important part that One Mom's Battle and the Center for Judicial Excellence don't really understand. Unlike option two that I gave you, where we just give in and say, we're so sorry, and we commit the children to the future trauma, that's a permanent remedy. We're giving up permanently, imposing that on the children. This remedy is always meant as an interim remedy, subject to a review when everybody's done their piece and the family can come back together and establish two equal, healthy, happy homes. They don't understand that. This is never the end of the story. It is not our goal to substitute one type of loss to avoid a different type of loss. The goal of this is singularly to do a little detour while the favorite parent gets some help to learn how to share the children and to not alienate, and the children get to experience the sole caregiving of the rejected parent to reignite their critical thinking skills, to show them balance, to make that relationship resilient, and then to reintroduce the favorite parent, monitor for regression, but move you back fairly quickly and get to the end goal, which is two equal, healthy, happy homes, mutual respect, hierarchies and boundaries, rental covenants, the do's and the don'ts, highly prescriptive parenting plan. And you wind up with a family system that was shut, completely shattered with diffuse boundaries and hierarchies, now having anchored on a structure that will support the healthy remaining years of the children's childhood. We take all this learning and we bake it in to this family system. We take the training wheels off and we say, you guys are now good to go. As a family system, it should be resilient because all participants, the favored parent has learned what they were doing wrong and how they need to change and is committed to doing it and has learned a lot. Same thing for the children. Guys, you know, you've been pretty out of line, pretty hurtful and cruel, unforgiving, overempowered, not a healthy way to come out of childhood. Mm -hmm. We're going to get you back on task. And rejected parent, you will hopefully have learned what the triggers were to the children's behavior, 
skill sets in negotiating parent-child disputes that are better than you had before, how to compromise on aspects of your own parenting that were not um, atypical, that were still normal, but just not optimal. So even the rejected parent that we're now supporting comes out of this having learned a lot of things, negotiated a new family constitution with the children now that they're going to be back in the picture. So it, it, if it's not undermined by surreptitious contact, for the reasons that I said, this sort of intervention is hardly this concentration camp, cruel, why would you do this, ripping child away from the parent they, they love. None of that applies. And if these two organizations would just attend one of my speeches, they could learn so much. But there's one more piece to the secret sauce here that they don't understand that I hope your listeners will spread. How is this sold to the children? So these organizations and their supporters pitch this as a terribly traumatic thing for the children. And I'm pitching it as simply timeout for a parent who, who needs to do their own growth and work and some makeup time for the children with the formerly rejected parent. Children understand about cutting the cake fairly. You can play on that. But here's the speech that I wish every judge would do when the children generally, in my experience, should be brought to court for the transition. And the judge should explain to the children, don't blame either parent for this. This was my decision because this is the only way I can think of saving your family. And it may appear at first glance to be something that you really don't like or really don't want, or you're going to be very upset. Please hear me out because it's only going to take two minutes for me to explain that um, I'm actually empowering you guys, the kids, to solve your own problem. And then the kids by this time are quite puzzled. You know, you're telling me I can't see mom or I can't see dad. I'm only going to live with the other parent. And yet you're telling me this is not so bad and it's only going to take you two minutes. So what are you trying to tell me, Your Honor? The judge says the following. All I'm asking you to do, because... I'm the judge. I'm the one who's going to let your dad or your mom back in the picture. I want you to learn how to treat the rejected parent with the same love and respect that you do the favorite parent. That is all I am asking. Do you guys think you can do that? Because if you guys can do that and also learn some skills in terms of disputes with parents and learn how to think for yourselves a little bit, you can have it all. You can have both parents. Mm -hmm. This is only a good thing. And here's the best part. I've put you guys in charge. Because the faster you can demonstrate love and respect, and the faster you can show me that you're thinking for yourselves, and the faster you can say, I get it. There's certain rules that I've, I've got to follow. And, and that this is a good thing the faster you get the favorite parent back. 
So DC now it's taken me less than two minutes and I've explained you guys are in charge and you guys can solve your own dilemma. And all I'm asking, love, respect, think for yourself, be empathetic, and be prepared to forgive and forget. These are all skills you have to learn as a kid. So kids, you think you can work with me on that? Because if you can work with me on that, I can work with you on getting you back with your, in this case, father, as fast as possible. And if that speech is made by a judge to the kids, there's no trauma. There's no, there's no transition people needed. The kids go willingly because they get it. This is just something that they got to follow because a judge said, and soon enough, they'll have their father back. And the court has said, your mom's a good person. You guys just need some makeup time together to work on all of this. You're going to go on a vacation and you guys are going to get some help and it's all going to be good. You're going to have fun. And then we're all going to come back together. You'll be seeing me again real soon. That's it. So I invite One Mom's Battle and the Center for Judicial Excellence and everybody else, please give me a call and I'll teach you not to act the way you're acting and not to post what you're posting. There you are. You can see why he speaks internationally, right? <laughs> Most definitely. You know, I was w watching TikTok Oh. And some 16-year-old posted that these kids wanted this filmed so everyone can see that they don't want to go back to their abusive mother. That's what she stated. <clears throat> and then as they were videotaping this, there was a woman. I don't know who this woman was, but she was standing with those kids and she was yelling at the cops or whatever she was yelling. It was inaudible. But who was she? I, if the father wasn't there, who is this other woman um, with these kids? And she was yelling at, I don't know who she was. But will there be, or, you know, any repercussions for this father for orchestrating this disaster? I, I would think so, because... Uh... One day, this is going to come back for the review. I mentioned that the evidence that this works comes from the review proceedings where the court's published decision recognizes the recovery that the children made and sets the new parenting plan in the course of stating. It's, you know, a remarkable turnaround and it, everything seems to be stable now. So if you if you follow these cases where there's been a protective separation ordered, and then you follow the next decision that comes out three to six months later, you start to develop a body of jurisprudence that shows, wow, it worked here, it worked there, it worked there. I, When I'm asking for this remedy, I'm putting all that jurisprudence before the court so the judge will have confidence in exactly what I just said. So um, at that review proceeding, or maybe an earlier proceeding, if this circus that it became to the children's detriment um, is put before the court and the court becomes aware of this, um, 
I think there's going to be some very important findings with implications for just how fast we are going to get to that next step because the court is going to expect, I imagine, the father not only to do a mea culpa about turning these kids against their mom in the first place with false allegations and other other machinations, but but also for having orchestrated this terribly traumatic thing that um, is going to haunt these kids. Mm-hmm. What a what a selfish thing for this father to have done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's going to have to make a mea culpa for having done that as well. And you know, I- again, I'm I'm just assuming that those are the facts, but. If I'm the judge and I get those facts, that's what I'm ordering. That's my point. Mm-hmm. Very late. I, I would like to say that when I started to do this work 11 years ago, not many judges were willing to order it. But now, and I know you live in Pennsylvania, which is in the dark ages, Marianne, as far as oh, yes. <laughs> what the courts are willing to do. But here in California, you know, more and more we get these orders that the children have to be moved to the <clears throat> formerly non-custodial parent. And, um, it, you know, I think that the judges and the lawyers are now much more cooperative and impressed that there is a remedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Attorney Lundberg's right that these kids should be brought to the courthouse. Yes. but And these kids were ordered brought to the courthouse. But the father defied the order. Of course. And dropped them off at an aunt's house. And it may have been the aunt who was filming mm. that horrible transaction. Um, but it could have been a neighbor because yeah. there were neighbors, community, school community, um, you know, the therapist who'd worked with this family, she was ordered to go with the police to the house to make it a smooth transition. Mm-hmm. And um, she was horrified by the number of people there. She said they were like larger than a group of 50. Um, and actually, the same therapist, um, I always ask someone to participate in the four day intervention like the therapist who's been working with the children prior to this or the minors council, you know, so that one, they can learn what the process is and see that it's anything but a concentration camp, Mm -hmm. but two, to give the children more perspective. So um, when when the children first came in, the therapist that they'd worked with for a year and a half was able to say, well, no, when you first made an accusation about your mom, you said this. But over the months, it got into saying that she had sexually abused you. And when you described what you thought the sexual abuse was, that was not sexual abuse. That was your mom trying to help you with a medical problem in both situations, Mm -hmm. you know. So um, it was very, very helpful to have her there. And I think that she is now an advocate, you know, for these four-day reunifications. Let Let me just say that what Lynn has just pointed out 
is an example of impaired critical thinking skills in a, in a child. You shouldn't be that malleable when you know objectively you're not being abused. You've never said that you're being abused. Um, you're old enough. You have a mouth. You've never mm -hmm. complained to anybody before, but you allow this to be reframed for you after the fact is not a good way to go through life. That's not, uh, you're missing out on an essential skill of childhood called critical thinking skills, learning to think for yourself. Otherwise, you're just going to be malleable in relationships, malleable at work, and not have a very pleasant experience in life. Mm -hmm. So we have to take the manipulation of children very, very seriously. It's an it's an aspect or an example of child abuse. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one thing we spend a lot of time on. I call them independent thinkers. Who's going to be an independent thinker today? And I will say that on the very first day in the afternoon, both children said, I'm sorry, mommy, I'm sorry I did this to you. This is horrible. And they both got in her lap and all three of them cried and cried. And that was the first day. And they also wrote apologies to the team that transported them here because, of course, they had a really good relationship with them by the time they got to Los Angeles mm -hmm. and since then as well. And I will say that, you know, they're relieved to be living in this new town with their mother because Otherwise, they would have had to go back into the community and tell the truth about what really happened and what they did, mm -hmm. what they were responsible for. And they did not want to do that. Mm -hmm. So when their mom said, you know, I can't live there anymore because I get death threats and, you know, people are threatening to murder me. And she's a therapist herself. And, um, you know, she had to close her practice and just leave. And the children were almost immediately ready to leave the school and all their friends. And, you know, they knew the enormity of the whole issue. Mm -hmm. Right. It was just disturbing when you have, I don't know who the 16 year old was that was telling everyone to look at this video and look how these kids are being treated and they're mm -hmm. being forced to go back to their abusive mother Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, how does a 16-year-old even know all this information? She must have got it from somewhere else. Of course. But and she, how did she know about the laws? I mean, she rattled off in one of the videos all the information about these laws. Most adults don't know about these laws or what the problem is with them. Mm -hmm. She was and, coached. And also, she was saying that those kids wanted her to film all this, to show the well, world. Yeah, the kids just went along with the program. That was a shame. I just... Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was the aunt that they were dropped off during the day instead of the dad taking them to court. Now, it's too bad the judge didn't stop and say, okay, dad, we're going to hold you in the courtroom. And we're going to have the aunt go get those kids and transport them to the courthouse. That would have avoided this whole mess. Yeah. But she did send the police, you know, to go and pick them up. Mm -hmm. 
And then she had to send these counselors who were the transport team to go and try to, you know, they're trained in de-escalating situations. So they're very good at that. Mm -hmm. And so these kids were well-trained, you know, and coached to act out to the nth degree. It's just, um, you know, it's a shame that that had to evolve into that. And now they're back with their mother, who is mm -hmm. not abusive. No. And they're all very happy, by the way. They send me updated photographs all the time. And, you know, they're having the ball together with the extended family. Mm hmm yeah. See, and they would be deprived the extended family, the you know, traditions, what things like that. And these alienating parents have no idea the damage they're doing. And the problem with some of these people, um, of these groups you're talking about just don't even believe in parental alienation to yeah. begin with. That's what the I problem would say is. That's because they're the alienators. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, they um, they don't believe in or they don't want to support what they call parental alienation theory. Mm -hmm. You know, if you sat them down and said, is it possible for a parent to turn a child against another loving parent? They'd be hard pressed to take you on on that. It's where it extends to you say, okay, and to such an extent over such a period of time that it's considered abusive and you have to act on it and take the children away from the parent that's doing that, that's where they say, you've gone too far, um, there's no science behind that, you can't force children to do this, um, the whole concept is a construct to hide the abuse in this case by the mother and on and on and on. So it's it's very much a result-driven opinion. They'll say anything, do anything to avoid the remedy, mm -hmm. not recognizing that the perpetuation of the family dysfunction is proven scientifically to be utterly destructive to mm -hmm. children. They're at war with half of themselves. And it, it's beyond debate when you see the science of what lies ahead for these kids. Mm -hmm. So as a system, we're trying to, happened. yeah, as yeah. a system, we're trying to protect these kids mm -hmm. from that, from when we interview them as young adults, they're highly damaged mm -hmm. because they didn't come out of childhood with bonded relationships with both parents. And there is only one way to avoid that, giving in and just allowing the perpetuation of the loss of a parent leads to that very trauma. Um, so again, if, if I, I really don't think that in an informed debate, their position is sustainable because it's founded on so many misconceptions and rhetorical argument and not, logic that when if you just slow it down calm it down do the sort of explanation that i did earlier in this podcast 
um, it inevitably leads to understanding. Um, so um, that's what we need. We need calm, solution-focused uh, debate. And it is unfortunate that this circus that they turned these poor kids' situation in has garnered such attention. But if it can be a catalyst to this sort of why do we need this remedy? We need this remedy because in super conflictual families, conventional therapy will inevitably fail and make it worse. Mm -hmm. So, so if, if we must avoid the loss of a parent in childhood at all costs, you can't take this remedy away. It's the very existence of this remedy that causes lawyers for alienating parents to say, stop it. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't, this is what's going to happen. And you'll pay all the other side's court costs. And you'll wind up in the same position as you could be today if you just share the kids. Mm -hmm. um, so, so a lot of trials are avoided because this remedy exists. Mm -hmm. So if you take it away, you're, you're basically going to be supercharging the prevalence of completely dysfunctional post-separation families. And you're just going to force parents to give up, like in this case, the mother, and compound all the losses. So the policy implications of what they're all yelling and screaming about because they're so misinformed mm -hmm. and uninformed are huge. This is one of the few practical remedies we have where a family system just doesn't want to settle down into a healthy state. Yeah. And, you know, if, um, part of the four-day reunification is that the last day we bring in the extended family. Most often it's grandparents, but sometimes it's aunts and uncles, cousins, you know, whoever has missed the children. And they come in and there's a family reunion, which is so touching and wonderful to watch. The children are always thrilled to see that grandparent that they haven't seen and want to talk about what happened. And I'm sure once they see their grandparents, then they have all these memories come back. Mm -hmm. Definitely, yes. At, at the end of this, there, there, there's, there's happiness. Mm -hmm. So again, they pitch this as so traumatic when, when in fact, they, they're, they're only focusing. And I'm, perhaps I should mention this. The tension that the court gets into, it, it'll make all these findings. And yes, there's a primary causal factor, in this case, the dad. What, do I, what am I going to do about it as a court? Um, knowing that, yeah, the kids are going to be unhappy. And yeah, the kids might, in some cases, experience some trauma from the disruption. It's a struggle between the short-term upset, which is... Lynn's experience and my experience shows is usually quite short and mm -hmm. manageable. Very short. Versus yeah. the long-term 
serious, serious implications. In Canada, we have the advantage that our provinces readily use um, insightful jurisprudence from other provinces. It wouldn't be binding in the other province, but they'll refer to it and adopt it and say, I like what Justice so-and-so in British Columbia said on this point. Well, it just so happens that in 2007, there was a British Columbia Court of Appeal case where the British Columbia Court of Appeal reversed the trial decision. Trial decision had found alienation, primary causal factor, no matter what darts you threw at the rejected parent, they were still normal. And and the judge expressed reservations, but hmm, I'm a little bit uncomfortable doing this, such a disruption, etc. So the Court of Appeal reversed, saying, you got the wrong focus. You must focus on the medium to long term. And yeah, there'll be some upset, but there's been upset over the last four years. You have to focus on the goal and the long term trumps the short term. Our case law has uniformly followed that thinking. And that case, AA, it's an acronym case, AA versus SNA has been cited repeatedly right across the country. I use it all the time. And it was not until 2020 that an almost identical case occurred in the Court of Appeal for England and Wales, their, their highest court for, um, for these things. And there's probably, there's the House of Lords, et cetera, but this is a very high court. And same fact pattern, same discussion, same conclusion, no reference. Nobody brought it to them. How could they? To 13 years before the British Columbia Court of Appeal had made that very, very clear. So we all need to learn from this. We all need to pull in. This is a worldwide problem. These are just human relations. All the family law statutes around the world are roughly similar in structure and goals and even language. This struggle, a dysfunctional family system that will never settle down. You're mm -hmm. either ultimately going to give up or do what we've been talking about as a short-term remedy back to two equal, healthy, happy homes. And how are you going to, how are you going to, what criteria are you going to use and what sort of analysis you're going to put on it? We need to be sharing that learning, sharing that jurisprudence. We do it in the scientific community. The conferences that Lynn's talking about, papers get published in leading journals. Um, I'm on the faculty for a postgraduate practitioner level course out of Ireland and Malta, of all places. Has an amazing clinic with all of this same knowledge as we do in North America. We need to tap into all of this in the legal field as well. My experience in the States, though, is it tends to be a little bit compartmentalized, and you, you could even say um, unenlightened that way, mm -hmm. so that um, you can't um, take a really thoughtful decision in California that we now have and then apply it in New Jersey. They, they won't even accept it. They won't look at it. 
I've had one or two, I consult all over North America. I've had one or two situations where the local council or attorney, as you guys call it, was asking me saying, okay, you know, that's, that's a, a good case from our state Supreme Court, but have you seen anything in Lincoln County? I said, you've got to be kidding me. You mean your state won't look at other high-level decisions from within your state? No, they'll look at it, but they prefer stuff from our county. <laughs> How many judges in your county? Generally, no more than two family court judges at a time. So how would you expect the knowledge and the jurisprudence to grow? So we don't have that problem in Canada. It would almost be negligent if there were some leading decisions in other provinces not putting them forward. So I think that would be helpful as well from the legal perspective is um, many of your listeners would be familiar with the concept of open science. Now we don't, we don't kind of, keep it close to our vest because you know we publish or perish kind of kind of thing as as there's knowledge you should spread it because usually you're dealing with a worldwide problem so too here and again if it's, it's unfortunate to say but if these children's trauma can act as a catalyst for learning that there's nothing wrong with this remedy there's nothing traumatic about this remedy Seems, according to Lynn's depiction, to have been sabotaged, but worked out well anyway. Let's just learn to do it right. Let's just learn that it does have a place. Let's not try and ban it and lock kids into the loss of a parent and extended family. Let, let's think instead of, why is this so politicized? Because no one articulates what the goal is and works backward from there all positional but I, I can say as a non-american um a lot of stuff in the states seems to be very adversarial and pick a side declare what side you're on when you're dealing with children the only side you should be on is the side of the happy ending mm -hmm. how do i get to the happy ending and work backwards from there and be open to this to these arguments so um as i said i invite a more calm uh, open scientific solution focused dialogue um so that we can we can take some learning from what has happened in in this particular family mm -hmm. yeah well i'm so glad i had you both on um Dr. Lynn, is there anything you'd like to add? No, I think Brian said it all. I think he did, yes. <laughs> and um and very use, articulately. Yes. And and to use that um concentration camp, that's an anti-Semitic. Yes. Um, that should not be used. I, I thought I thought we were past all that. No, there's an uprise, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, has no place in reasonable solution-focused discourse. Yeah. And unfortunately, I don't think we're dealing with people that are focused. Or educated, I'm sorry to say. Exactly, right. Well, let's hope that uh, the hosts of those two forums 
think. I hope they see this podcast and pause to think. Mm-hmm. Just maybe, just maybe, they got it wrong. Mm-hmm. And in it's a it's a responsibility to have a forum that the public visits. Maybe you should think about moderating the content and perhaps allowing for the posting of the other side of the story. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. we'll see. That will be chapter two. Um, <laughs> yeah. Lynn and I are, are due in another forum in, in two minutes. So thank you, Marianne, for thank hosting you. us. And yes, thank you thank for you, coming Marianne. on. Thank you. Slam the Gavel is a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. And I'm sure I'll have you both back on again in the future. And I thank you so much for popping on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.